Hello my fan friends, welcome to the second episode in this new venture, the Rahalastaba Book Club, in which I chat to authors just about their books. And I encourage you to buy those books and support the authors, and they'll all be great books that I have read myself and enjoyed. So this first one is with Robin Ince. Why not sit back, relax, buy a copy of The Importance of Being Interested, and read along as we talk about... No, don't do that, it'll be confusing. Anyway, hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, my fine friends. Welcome to another Rahalastapur Book Club, in which we just discuss a book, because I want to try and read more books. This is a good, and you should read more books. And this is a good book to be discussing with that in mind. Uh, I'm joined once again by a man who's been on quite a lot of these Friday podcasts. It's Robin Ince. Hello, Robin. Uh, and we are discussing your very important work, uh, The Importance of Being Interested, by Robin Ince, who is also the author of this, as well as talking about it. Um, thank you for coming in and chatting uh, via Zoom, coming in. Um, what is your book about, Robin? How would you? What would you say it's about? Well, I, I suppose the basic idea of it was uh, the more that I was doing science shows, the more I would come across people who were scared by certain kind of ideas of science uh, or just had that bit of existential anxiety. So whether that was about, you know, the size of the universe, the idea that everything is finite, uh, our connection with all of the other living creatures in the world, all of these things which can kind of sometimes remove some of the certainties that make living you know possible for you they're kind of coping mechanisms you know science can pull away quite a few of your coping mechanisms so i wanted to write a book where uh, i would kind of say i know that this thing has been taken away from you by evidence and stuff but there's another story in it as well which is perhaps enriching so it was to, to give you know some of it really came from the time i suppose one of the first ideas was when my son was about seven or eight years old and um he became aware of the idea that things might be finite you know that bit where you kind of yeah. go oh mum and dad might not be around forever and in fact i might not be around forever and that and um and the things that i told him to try and reassure him so sure. with, but without recourse to things that I don't believe in because I know some people have said do you know what a certain age just say there's a heaven or something like that and I was like well I don't want to do that um so I told him some stories about the kind of just the the atoms that he was made of and where they'd been and, and where they might go and and that was one of the things I was I started to think more and more about how can you find because for me I've generally found most of the scientific ideas that I've found out about in the last 20 years have been enriching and useful, not increased my existential anxiety, which already was high anyway. So, I mean, you know, I walked in with quite a lot of existential anxiety. Maybe it was at sure. peak existential anxiety anyway. There was nowhere for it to go. And so that that was really the starting point. And to kind of, and also the other thing was a lot of people say, oh, I haven't really got a scientific brain or I'm not into science. And that's another thing that I've come across a lot in the years that I've done science shows. So I wanted to say, oh, you don't need a special brain and you don't have to worry about knowing what the equations mean and you you, yeah. you might not win the nobel prize but there's lots to be gained by just beginning to to look at the world from some of the ways that science looks at the world yeah well it's very good for that i, re I read uh or I had i listened to an audio book about i think it's the god particle i've forgotten the name of the uh of the author but it, got, it was all about quantum physics and it was interesting but it, it was just a lot of it was way beyond what I could understand, even though it was still quite a simple book. And I suppose that is part of the, it, it, although there's still things in this book that kind of bend your mind a little bit. It's part of it is that the relationship you have on the infinite monkey cage and with Brian Cox is that you 
you know, you, you're you not coming from this. I know everything and I'm going to tell you now in confusing detail. It's sort of from a starting point. Well, interestingly that you were, you know, you were, that you were put off this stuff at school and, um, but have become interested in it off your own bat in your own way, I suppose, as well, isn't it? Yeah, but- well, it just felt like I was missing out on a lot. And again, I, I yeah. don't have any deep understanding. You know, quite often when I've been doing events about the book, someone will put their hand up and say, just one of the things I wanted to ask about Heisenberg. And I'll go, oh, no, 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 no. There's another man who does that work for me. This isn't my... So it's kind of... Uh, but I would always I would always refer people... I mean, this was an interesting thing as well, which I think says a lot about... I think one of the reasons that people don't like science is you can be wrong in a way that you're not wrong when you have an opinion about some opera you've seen or whatever and so I think even in kind of you know well I say even you know sometimes especially in broadcasting companies or the BBC or whatever it will be people love being oh, I went to Covent Garden actually saw La Traviata and one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting about that interpretation <laughs> and um, something I was reading the other day about quantum mechanics something I, I, that I would question about and, and then if someone says oh that's not actually really how we look at wave particle duality well that seems rather insulting actually doesn't it because actually I, my opinion on La Traviata everyone thought was very very good so I don't see why I'm <laughs> <laughs> and you see it in newspapers all the time, all these terrible, terrible hacks and, 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 and provocateurs who never really understand the science and actually find it insulting that anyone should dare to say you've misunderstood. Well, do you yeah. mean I've misunderstood? I've actually got a 2-1 from Oxford in PPE. <laughs> well, you may well have that, but it doesn't. And, you know, we've seen that a lot during the COVID, you know, during the lockdown where there's people who are very intelligent in one particular area. And then they've said, and this is why I don't believe vaccines work, because they think, you know, they've done their kind of YouTube sure, sure. stuff and they've read their things and they've not really understood what they've seen. And uh, but they've thought, well, I've, I've got my certificate on a wall. So it means I'm brainy and everything. And I think that yeah. is why once you accept you, you go, all right, then this is really difficult. And a lot of it I'm never going to understand. Uh, and I have to accept that there are an, an enormous number of people who know more than me about these things. Yeah, and you know, and and they aren't aren't the the great thing about science or the interesting thing about science is they're not necessarily right that something might come along and uh, you know and change their view. We even right at the end of the book, there's a bit where you go, oh, and I've just read another book that shows this thing I've just said isn't the case anymore. And so you know that you're open. Being interested is about being open to new information, which, as you say about when you're talking about kids, that kids uh, enjoy learning, and even if they have an idea about something. They'll go, I think eyes work like this by shining beams of light at stuff. And then you show them it doesn't. And then they're excited that they were wrong and they're excited by the the next piece of information. Yeah, that's wonderful. Maybe- that Yeah, Anna yeah. Goldsworthy, who was a teacher that I spoke to. And the only reason that she ended up kind of specialising and, and writing about how to teach science was because in her school, no one else at a primary school, no one else wanted to teach science because they were all petrified of being wrong. Right, and right. they haven't really enjoyed it, and and that, and so she ended up by default. And then these lovely things that she does, or when they talk about digestion, and she goes, "Oh, so we got a load of old tights, and we stuffed some food in it, and then we kind of <laughs> rung it, and and all of that, and and that's what you see that you you're meant to get to a point where you no longer like just getting kind of mucky and sticking Mentos in a fizzy drink and seeing how they explode and stuff. And the truth of it is that people always still enjoyed that. You should still <laughs> yeah. enjoy, you know, dicking around. And yeah, that's something I wanted to get across in the, in the book as well is the amount of play 
that exists in science. It, it, I think very often in secondary school education, it can seem, due to the way the curriculum is, that it's just these, you know, kind of abstract numbers and symbols on a board. And you lose the bit of Einstein just daydreaming, just thinking about if there was nothing around me and I was just falling, but there was no, no other reference, how would I know I was falling? And he starts, you know, all of those things, um, they start off with daydreaming and playing around. Yeah, and, and the, the the place of the imagination within science is, yeah, as you say, is often like forgotten. But obviously, theories come from just sort of partly from guessing and and thinking maybe it's like this. Let's see if it's like this. Let's see if this is the reason this happens. And you know, there is a lot of fun uh, in science. And I think you're right. The book sort of does sort of talk about uh, school not necessarily nailing that aspect usually, or a lot of school uh, not doing so. Um, did was this was this did it come out of lockdown this book in that that you was it because I thought it was going to be more like oh I've had conversations with lots of people which it clearly is and here they are written out but actually you you've had hundreds of conversations with people and used tiny little snippets not you know it's your it's your book with tiny little quotes from these many conversations you've had rather than here's a chapter where I talked to Brian Cox about this or here's a chat you know so it's did was that was it an idea you'd had before lockdown yeah was it I mean I, I was that's what I was going to spend last year to 2021 right. doing was writing that book that was my plan right and uh that's right isn't it to oh no 2020 that was it 2020 yeah. was when I started writing it yeah right. that would be it and uh it took a very long it took it didn't take that long to write but it took an enormous amount of time to edit because it yeah. was it was over a hundred thousand words longer than the publisher wanted, and uh, eventually I'm, I cut out about seventy thousand. But I, I've never spent so long editing a book, and that was one of the interesting things. You know, I'd be talking to these astronauts, or I'd be talking to Jane Goodall, and then an editor would say, "You've just kind of put in everything that Jane Goodall said." And I said, "Yeah, of course I have. She's brilliant." Um, and so. And and then because it, as you say, it's not a book of interviews. There's lots of people weaved in into it. That was why it became so enormous because I wanted to have mm. all of those bits in there, and I wanted to have so much of kind of you know talking to people like Rusty Schweikart from Apollo Nine and things like that. Um, so that bit was very very tough. But but that's what did change the book as well, which was originally there weren't going to be so many people weaved through it. And then when lockdown began, one day I was thinking, oh, there's a thing I want to know about space travel. And, you know, fortunately, I have got the contact details of astronauts and stuff. So I sent an email to Chris Hadfield. I said, Chris, you got an afternoon where you can just uh, have a little chat. It's just about half an hour or so. He said, yeah, sure. And um, and so we had a long conversation. And that was the first interview. And then the next day I thought, yeah, I really do need to know this thing. And suddenly I knew that everyone was bored. Everyone was at home. Everyone was desperate to talk about what they did. And so that's why I ended up, I mean, I've got over a million words of interviews in, in files. So it's, it's like, I've, and, and that was, I've got, and most, I mean, I think at, at the back where I thank people, there's probably more people thanked for doing an interview that didn't appear in the book than for, you know, there's a huge yeah. of philosophers and, you know, <laughs> Eric Idle had a chat with him because of course he had uh, David McColeman because there was going to be, for some reason there was going to be a chapter about music. And so that all of these different people who, who aren't even in the book and then someone That's said nice. well that must be great that means you've got another book there went no for some reason i don't know if you find this you go yeah i have got a million words too many but none <laughs> of them are somehow of any use apart from in this book that i was writing yeah well that's but that i think that's probably the correct call well you, you might find a one of the sparks of something else i suppose but yeah it is it is you know it's a it's a slight i know you've got this butterfly braid anyway and it's a slight you know we're, we're jumping around lots of different subjects but it but it does cover things very well and 
uh, and give you sort of current thought on most things. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's loads of things I'm interested in. I'm, I'm sort of I'm I'm interested in sort of the infinite universe idea that if the universe is infinite, then everything happens, which I I can't. I you know I sort of feel there's a chance even if the universe is infinite that there isn't anywhere else where there's even human beings. I don't see why it has there's because you know there's lots of different kinds of infinity, um, and the ch- and the chances of human beings even appearing on this planet took so many steps. You know what I mean to get it, everything had to happen as it happened based in the last billion years for human beings to arrive. That it makes me think a maybe human beings are the only intelligent pe- beings in the universe. And B, you know, not everything, not everything that can happen happens. Even if if I was, if you're saying the universe is infinite, so everything happens. uh, A, people are twins and aren't the same. So there could be the same connection of atoms as me and it's still not me. But B, is there a universe where I decide to conduct the rest of this conversation in Spanish, even though I can't speak Spanish and don't think you can. And I persist with that. And carry on doing that. Do you think that happens if the universe is infinite? Um, well, if it's infinite, yes. I don't, but, I don't think it does because I don't think I would ever. I wouldn't ever do that. So it's not. It just because I, there know, is more... a better you. There is a you that is way more than bilingual. In no, uh, there's a way. There's there is a, a you you're where saying... you're a Doctor Doolittle. You go to the zoo. No, you're chatting that's, to some dolphins. You're that's going not over, what we're talking about. Some pygmy shrews. You're having a wonderful time. You are probably one of the most limited Richard Herrings in the universe, no, which is a great pity. That's not a, there's a universe which is exactly the same up to the moment we started this interview, which you would have to be, Robin, for this interview to take place. And for us all to be here in the cast of humanity and all the animals and all the bits of grass to be in all the same places. And then there's a, according to you, there's a universe where I, as me, at this moment, everything's exactly the same up to right now, go, no, I'm going to give a crack and I'm only going to speak Spanish for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to attempt to learn Spanish. Yeah, that's not that's not going to happen. No, not not in this universe. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's a limit of your imagination. I mean, there <laughs> is isn't. a possibility that even in in infinity, <laughs> some kind of intelligence has said just one herring will do. I know everything else has an infinite number of versions, but he's nothing but more than problematic. But it is. I think that infinity is a good example of something which is we cannot really get our head round it. Because we can't even really get our head around. Once you go back more than 10,000 years, it's too big. Numbers become too... You know, I I was reading a book by Jan Levin the other day. And, you know, just this lovely thing where you go, even between zero and one, there are an infinite number of numbers. So even there, an infinite number of fractions, right? So we find all these different ways of trying to frame it. But in the end, we're still not seeing that, that if it was infinite, that is, it's a bit like, you know, the, the Boltzmann brain thing, which I think made it into the edit, but I can't entirely remember if I cut that out. <laughs> but Boltzmann brain is the idea that it could look statistically more likely that what is happening at this very second is that you have, that are basically, very briefly, a bunch of particles have come into a pattern that has created you believing you're experiencing this now, you believing that you've had a past for the last 53 years, you believing you'll have a future and all of those things. And that's all it is. All of that thing is just very briefly in the huge, vast sea of particles over a vast period of time, it's more likely than you actually existing. Um now, that was actually originally, and like many things like Schrodinger's cat, it was actually originally come up with to say what a ridiculous idea that was. But nevertheless, <laughs> it is still, there is a truth to it that 
in in an infinite universe with a, an enormous amount of time, then every now and again it would just happen that a sea of particles come together in basically the pattern and the experience of a brain, and then they drift off again, and then they become a bunch of flowers. I I disagree that that's the case, and I will not allow anyone to say. I I, I think you could yeah, refute more... it thus by kicking your desk, but that's a totally different argument. There's that's... more ways. Of, there's there's so many infinite. You don't need to. You know, there's so, there's lots of different types of infinity, so you can have infinity versions of the universe. Where you know I'm the only Richard Herring, and you know that that could be the case. And also the other Richard Herrings, I might not be the same. I might not have my fantastic soul inside them. See, now I want the Christopher Nolan movie where, in <laughs> in the steps that I see behind you, twenty seven Richard Herrings come up, all of them singing in Spanish, and you go, <laughs> "I've been a fool to reject this science." But, but things have to. So I, you know, there's no universe where I'm your dad, because that's not possible. Well, it's not again, possible that my genetics would create your genetics. So it need, it need for you to exist. Your parents are at least beings with the exact. But same it's, it's just too, it's too makeup. many variables for us to be able to put it in our heads. That's basically the idea. Inf- infinity is just too big. And the most important thing, you know, and I mentioned it quite a few times in the book, is sometimes these ideas are beautiful and wonderful and 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 philosophically interesting. But don't base your life on them. You know, even if we are in a simulation, and I don't believe that we are in a simulation, and I believe that even if we were in a simulation, it would make no difference the way you should live your life anyway, and what would happen in your life. Even if that, yeah, that's exactly, you just have to not, you know, go, that's a beautiful idea, that's perfect for the science fiction novel that I'm writing, but I've still got to basically worry about the fact that energy bills have really gone up, haven't they? And, oh, God, I forgot to buy eggs. Those are still I mean, the bigger issues. We are probably in a simulation, though. <laughs> well, this is. I mean, I think that is far more likely because I think coders would be malevolent enough to uh, make us. Yeah, I think. But, the, you know, again, it's sort of the, the chances of uh, being alive right now and, and being in the lucky position we are to spend most of our life podcasting with each other. Uh, it's, it's so unlikely to in all of human in all of the world's 3.5 billion years. Uh, to be living right now uh, and and have the the luck that we've had, it seems too too good to be true. So the, a simulation makes more sense than than just imagining it all. Kind of oh, I, I, I like the fact that you are both being Panglossian and then yeah. placing your glasses on your nose as well. Which and your nose it works so well to fit your glasses as well, <laughs> Doctor Pangloss. <laughs> um, but there's what I love about this. But so the, the again, you get more range of. Uh, source material i think than you would in a lot of uh, science books so you're you're sort of talking about the simpsons of waiting for god and the far side and keats and different eric von daniken i'm very glad gets a uh, which again i think like eric von daniken's a very interesting thing in terms of and especially now isn't it in terms of conspiracy theories and people filling in the, their own gaps to create their own stupid ideas like i just did about infinite universe <laughs> um you know it's it's but it, in a way I was so obsessed with Eric von Daniken for a short period when I was sort of 13 or 14, but it does at least ignite your interest. And it sounds like you are as well, that you buy all these, these books. Well, that, I, mean, I, I think Daniken when we were, because we're, we're pretty similar generation, I think what you're about a year older than me. And, and, and so yeah, yeah. the same, which was our journey into some of these things was through uh, when you're, when you're a kid, 
there's loads of brilliant nonsense and you don't know it's nonsense. And yeah, then yeah. if you're lucky, you whittle it down in a less bad direction than other. <laughs> I won't say a better, but a less bad direction. So, so you know, all of those books about mysterious worlds and Atlantis and, uh, and, and Eric von Daniken. And then that's kind of that nice bit that where you start. Or, or who was that guy? Um, uh, you saw the, 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 the thing of Don Juan. There was a, a Carlos Castaneda. Yeah, I don't okay. know if you remember him, and he and he no. and so much of that stuff. It was, I mean, as I say in the book, one of the great examples. The thing you do learn from Eric von Daniken is it's probably more profitable to write utter bullshit because utter <laughs> bullshit is always wrong. So his books are all still published, whereas most science books from the sixties and the seventies from the same period would no longer be published because the science has changed because they're yeah. evidence based. But if you're basing it on absolute just bollocks <laughs> then it remains absolute bollocks and and that's uh i mean i am sad about the fact that when i first started writing this book there was this plan that in blackpool they were going to build an eric von Daniken world it was kind of going to be part of i don't know where, and then by the time i'd finished writing the book that had been changed so i can't even remember if i kept it in and just left the footnote or just had to scrub it out which is a great pity but, no, but that's, that's, that's the thing still in there. thinking but, is if the universe is infinite it's it's still there somewhere and there's an infinite number of them so don't worry it'll be fine you can go on a different universe, uh, but yeah, it, well, it, that's that's all. And I, I, you know, I think it is about that. It's well because you talk about Keats and science unweaving the rainbow, uh, and this is a very passionate uh, book in terms of saying that science makes you know, in, in a lot of ways, makes things more beautiful and 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 better, and that truth is uh, is is better than sort of lies and and made up stuff. Um, so I mean, looking at there's a night there's a there's a good, great uh, chapter about death and uh, the realities of death and and how it isn't necessarily uh, a bad thing to die. You know, I did a show called Rich Showing. Uh, uh, what was it called? It was called something about being dead. I can't remember what it was called. That's terrible, isn't it? I can't remember my own shows. Um, uh, but it was about death, and uh, is that is that idea of actually never dying is is sort of worse than. Than having an end to your existence. Yeah, eternity is too long. You know that is, yeah. uh, but it's interesting. I mean, the, the the death chapter where uh, I, I spoke to my friend John, who who lost his son Jamie in uh, um, he, he died in a motorcycle accident, and he was a very you know really he's always been an interesting person to talk to about that, and um, because he's an atheist and most of his close family are atheists, and Jamie was an atheist, he didn't uh, you know believe in. Uh, um, you know any form of afterlife, but they've still found these ways of creating stories, and I think that that's one of those things that I now I look as I was finishing the book, I thought, ah, oh, maybe this, you know, there we go, maybe this is what the book should have been about. It's too late now, but it's but about that importance of creating stories, and it's really, you know, after Jamie died, I, I can't remember which ones I mentioned in the book, but you know, John would tell me these stories of, you know, that they always return to the, the nearest drainage grate where the accident happened, where Jamie died. And they pour some bottles of J2O down the drainage grate. And the reason they do this ceremony is because when Jamie was a teenager, he drank loads of J2O thinking he was alcoholic and then weaved around the house going, oh, dad, I've had loads of J2O. I'm really drunk. (laughs) And uh, and just finding those. And that's also what I want, because I think sometimes in, in some scientists and some science books can be very cold in just saying, well, there is no afterlife. There's no this and this. And... Finding, you know, that, that's one of the reasons I did a chapter about God, about the fact that there are some scientists I know who find a space to believe in some form of God and are also brilliant scientists. 
And, you know, I'd love to have examined more that idea of where God is in, in our brains compared to where evidence-based thinking is, because I think they are in kind of, it, it, you know, without wishing to com- compartmentalise, but they can be in separate places. And so, yeah, I, I, I wanted to kind of put in a lot of stuff like that as well, which is you don't have to lose all your myths. You don't have to lose all your stories. Everything doesn't have to become an equation. You can still play around with a lot of ideas. You know, you play around with the memory of the people who are gone. You create your own. I mean, it, in fact, there's a really great, I think I've got, have I got it, Brian Greene's book, Until the End of Time. And he's, he's a, a brilliant scientist. I love Brian Greene. And, and that was a really good book of, of looking at also how to make sure that the struggle to be human is still part of when we're looking at the scientific world and to not immediately go, well, science says this, therefore you're not allowed to have that. Well, there might be a way that science says that and you can still have this thing. You can still have a little bit of this kind of, you know, ma- magical dreaming. Mm-hmm. And I think what's amazing about you, uh, one of the many things that's amazing about you, Robin, is uh, is just the, the sheer volume of uh, of material that you've managed to ingest into your brain, and and are, and even just in terms of writing a book like this, managed to organise it into something that's coherent. But how do you find the time to? read so you know you read so much. how many books do you read a week do you read a book a day do you read a two but well no I was, I was explaining this to someone and it's a thing that shocks and horrifies people sometimes when you do gigs in bookshops is i don't finish a lot of books i do i dive in all the time you know as you know right. in, the, in the room that i'm in it's just filled with books it's ridiculous and it's a and i'll go like the book that i'm working on now uh i'll just suddenly go where's that one where's that one? right there's that and oh, oh that leads to that and that leads to that so so that the hardest bit is as you were saying there is corralling it into a pattern that other people can understand like quite often the first draft of a book like with this one which i haven't done with the most recent book the book i've just written i've I've done four drafts before i've shown it to anyone but with this right at the beginning i started showing people drafts saying what hits you what works what doesn't and a lot of people of my friends always like the first draft most but that's only because they know me and they can hear me going Einstein and then Marie Curie and the uh, thing about the episode of the Simpsons and they hear that and it's fine but to anyone who'd pick that up in a bookshop would just go someone's been sick all over this book yeah, well, it's good. You know, it's good. I do want to. I do want to read more. I mean, I find the audio book of this of this book is is great. I think the problem, my problem, I have with audio books, and and again, the problem with listening to the audio book version of this is there's so many thoughts that then, as you're as you're listening, a thought springs off yourself. You know, so you'll say something that inspires. If you're reading the book, you can put the book down and have a think about it. But if you're listening to the book, you often find oh. I'm five minutes on, and I've, I've been off on my own, my own little journey. But in a way, this is the ideal book for for that to happen with, because it's sort of the it's sort of the nature of the book itself. Is, well, well that's know. what I really wanted to do. Was I was explaining to someone a, a, a while ago about roughly, you know, I, I I could call it a process, but other people would just call it an illness. Which is, I just <laughs> want to pour in as much as possible into my head, and then shake it around, and then take the top off. And that's kind of yeah. what my stand up is. And I and I think, you know, what. I mean, the book that I've just done, Bibliomaniac, which is a kind of about a love of books, and it goes off in so many different ways. It allowed me, it's based on the 100 Bookshop tour that, that I did initially, mm-hmm. but it allows me to explore in quite an erratic way loads of different books and loads of different ideas because I'll get to a certain town and go, I remember this was where M.R. James was buried, and this leads to this thing, and then this leads to this ghost guy that I met, and then that leads to an idea about entropy. And then, and then there was a bit where in the first edit where I'd suddenly go, 
ah, that's the one tangent too far. You know, when you can go, even with tangents, you can go, there's still a shape to them. And then you go, and now chaos. And that's kind of, you know, and, and that was the same with this book, which was, you know, I, I really wanted it to be dense with entertaining stories and interesting ideas so that people would then go off and read proper books about these subjects. I mean, it's what Monkey Cage, what we always try and do as well, is never just go, here are some facts, but hopefully tell a story that's interesting enough that people then go, oh, I want to go off and find out more. I'm going to go now and buy a book or buy a telescope or whatever it is. And so from a kind of a different different perspective in the terms of writing, um, are you now at the stage where if you have an idea for a book, you can go to your publisher and your publisher will go, yep, go ahead. Or I mean, is it sort of, are you, are you presumably selling enough books that they keep going back and say, do another one? Well, let's so find out like... after the next one. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I was glad with like the bibliomaniac one just came from the fact that in, in December, some people were saying, Oh, I'm enjoying re- reading your blogs about going on the book tour. Why don't you do a book? And I suddenly went, it wouldn't surprise me if next year tours might still get cancelled. I'm really going to need something to do. So I wrote the first chapter yeah. and and I always, and it was like, it's that difficult thing where I, I worry about purpose a lot. Like this book had purpose in my mind. There was a specific reason for it to exist. Um, and the previous one, I'm a joke and so are you. There was specific and, uh, you know, reasons that stories that I wanted to tell that I thought could be helpful. And then working on this one is the first one that I've done for a while anyway, where I just go, this, I just want just people to have fun with it and really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. And, and there's no other purpose. And then I feel very guilty. Um, but yeah, we'll find out when I'm about to finish this one now, do the final draft on that. And then we'll see if any publisher picks up on the next one that I've got. And then I'll be able to tell you if there's beginning to be a pattern. <laughs> well, the, you're a joke. So I keep, that's a book I keep. I mean, I mentioned it a lot in my podcast talking to other comedians, because I think there's 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 sort of so much about why people become comedians. And I'm I'm as fascinated about that as you. And I think I sort of think I don't think I have any of the tragic stories in my life that have that have made me become a comedian that you that you talk about but that that's a, a another fantastic fantastic book um see that's but, the and, one that and, i'd really like to uh i wish it had been a huge success because then i'd be allowed to just write a kind of you know a rewrite of it because they say oh yeah you can do an update and um <laughs> but that that's the one that i would most i would really like to because i found out after doing that we might have talked about this i can't remember when we when, when, when we talked about it a, you know a couple of years ago but but it's the one that I've had the most people coming up and saying, like, even I was in FOP and in, uh, in, in, in London, and this guy came up to me and said, can I just save this book? It really helped me with this thing. And, you know, people yeah. who've had issues and people who sometimes, you know, and that bit of, because we're all just seeking purpose, aren't we? And that bit of actually going, oh, good, someone read this and they were in a really bad place. And somehow it, Jilted, you know, and that's what I mean. That's what yeah. we hope we do with stand up as well, isn't it? Which is that's yeah. that's why you know the really nasty, edgy stand up. I always think, I, you know, I really I think stand up is at its best when you just go, oh, some people came tonight and they were all happier at the end, and they felt <laughs> that the world was a good place to live. You know, yeah, they... <laughs> it's, it's it's nice, but yeah, I mean that's sort of, but it's sort of interesting in terms of, I mean, would you as a writer, would you rather? Yeah, that you know your next book definitely happen. I mean, it, this is a sort of silly question because the other, if the other side, it would definitely happen. I mean, Adam Kay is that example where he writes a book and it suddenly goes insane and he can buy a massive mansion in the countryside as a result of, of writing one book. I mean, would do you do you, would you like that to happen to your books or do you think it's sort of nice that that you've got like a readership that 
a, a strong readership who who will presumably buy everything you do, and 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 probably that will allow you to carry on writing more books. Or do you sort of covet that idea of this is the one that's going to break through and and earn me millions of pounds? I don't, I'm not the millions of pounds doesn't matter. Um... But I would, I'd like, it's that thing, I'm sure you've had it, where you go, if I just knew for sure that in every art centre I played, I didn't, <laughs> there weren't those towns where I have to keep tweeting, just so you know, still a few tickets there. It's literally that thing. It's not saying I want to play the arena. It's saying I would like to not be as worried about every every small theatre. And I think yeah, that's yeah. what I would like, is that I would like to, I mean, you know, I'm always filled with self-doubt and worry and stuff like that. And... um and and that's all, but I'm you know Adam Kay's. But I mean the interesting about Adam Kay's, but even though that was enormous, it, it also I think was in, had an incredible reach in terms of how it helped people, and that was a huge yeah. audience who you know. And I've seen him talk about it live, and I've seen the reaction that people you know had had him talking about that. So yeah, obviously I would like to have that. It, it's not I'm not going to go. Do you know what, Richard? What I'm really hoping is <laughs> they never sell too well. I'm always hoping the publisher's just on a knife edge. Um, I, I, I would love, I'd love the next one to, you know, I, I, I would love that. I mean, this one sold, sold well. It's, it's done absolutely fine. And, um, but there's always a bit where you go, wouldn't it be lovely to, on almost every train that you sat on, just to look across and go, maybe I'll go over and go, I hope you're enjoying my book. You know, that kind of And uh, so, yeah, I, I hope more people, I mean, I hope it keeps building. That's the thing is each book sold more than the last one. And um, and and I'd, I'd like to, but but yeah, I don't think I'd ever, I'm not worried about being, yeah, huge. I think we're, we're in our 50s now. You need to, you just need to worry about creating stuff and going, oh, the stuff I've created has also led to being able to survive and being able to live, yeah. you know, we, we live, we're lucky. We live quite nice lives, don't we? We do, and but it's a, such a precarious job being a writer, and that you know, and it, and I feel like I'm probably we're probably in a similar position. Whereas if I come up with an idea, I've got a good chance of someone publishing it, but also not a very good chance. Of, <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe it can tens of thousands of people might buy it, or, or several thousand people might buy it. So it's not it's not a disaster, but uh, you know, it it is nice to be in that position that you think, oh, I could spend the year writing a book and they'd probably pay me enough to, you know, with the other stuff I'd do to make that worth doing. And Oh, I mean, so, that would know, be amazing the... if you actually went, oh, my God, the advance I've got is so much that I'm not <laughs> going to think about. But, I mean, it's it's been lovely watching someone like Natalie Haynes, you know, and, and her stand-up yeah, yeah. for the classics world. And, you know, each book has sold more than the last. And because when people have been introduced to a new book, they've gone back, they've, they've bought her previous books. And you yeah, just yeah. see a career that has now reached a point in terms of, in you know, her the, the respect people have for her and, and things like that. Though I'm not worried about yeah, respect, yeah. I have to admit that bit of the way. I still feel like an alien at almost every book festival that I go. To, all the kind of highfalutin ones, I yeah, still, yeah. I still feel like it was. But then again, I feel like that about comedy. You know, last night I was the, I went on at the end of a, a new act competition, and they were all great. And I said to them on stage, just so you know, I'm, you know, thirty years I've been doing this, and I'm still <laughs> going. Oh God, I don't let down all the, you know, that bit. Is yeah. that that fear of being an imposter, that fear of failure? Much as I would like to have less of it, I do also realise it's what is perpetually driving me to go. I've got to come up with a new thing. <laughs> but I think you know, you are you know, the, this this book is sort of almost your just the title of it is sort of your philosophy, and the fact that you are interested in so many things and want to get to the bottom of them, but also that you're meeting through your job, you're meeting all these extraordinary people that most people wouldn't get to meet and talk to and see the the human side of so you know i think 
it, you're exactly the right person to to be put in that position in that you're interested in the science but you're also interested in people and and that's what comes out i think from this is you you know, you're talking to astronauts and maybe asking them questions that uh, another astronaut wouldn't ask them and a scientist might not ask them but that will be will humanize the situation because it's sort of certainly with physicists and things like that it's it's kind of they seem so i mean i love that stuff about david deal that he's obviously done that that play about it but that that science that, that quantum physics feels like it's so fanciful what what you're being told that it could just be uh, the same thing as a, an oracle on a greek mountain spouting a load of shit at you and say yeah you're you're actually just a you know you're a shadow of something from the 12th dimension that and you don't have, you don't exist in any way. You're just a projection, uh, and you know it's it's very hard to kind of understand. I mean, it, you you do a pretty good job with this, but I still don't. I, I still can't understand that those ideas, those quantum ideas of. But I, but I, 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 almost, I don't think it is necessarily about understanding. No. I think I think there's a level of understanding that even comes from just realizing how utterly baffling it is. The, the baffling nature of reality, solidity, all of those things. That's a, a, already a start of, of understanding. The bit yeah. where there's no understanding is when someone lives in a certain world. And, of course, there's loads of those people. And, and sadly, they're the ones who are able to monetize their ridiculous opinions best because people like that bit of once you, you go, oh, I still, you know, accept that you're never really going to understand it. And accept that in some ways, whatever you're trying to understand, there's no point in you because you're not going to be the person who invents the thing that's useful. That's not the area you're in. So yeah. it, so it doesn't matter. But the bit that you just go to to find that bafflement, uh, something which has a kind of delight in it, a, a sensation, rather than merely, oh, God, this is baffling. <laughs> Two-dimensional hologram. <laughs> then that, but just to go, it, you know, as I mentioned in the book, you know, it's that David Lynch thing. You know, I love films that don't make direct sense. I like them yeah. a lot more than a film that goes, hi, my name's Mike Goody. I'm Tony Baddy. And you watch that and you go, yeah, 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 here we go. Here's their free act. And then I watch someone yeah. like David Lynch. And, oh, again, that's why I bring up Beckett and, you know, Tarkovsky and people like that is you can watch them and you can get different things from them. And it and if one person says, well, I can tell you exactly what it means when the director can't tell you exactly what it means, then you know that yeah. they're bullshitting. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think it would be it would be very pleasing if we could get more people just because I mean all the people that I played to when I did the bookshop tour they were so lovely and I mean the loveliest thing is when I'd sometimes do like in in Wivenhoe where I went to a lovely bookshop in Wivenhoe and it was a Saturday afternoon audience you know predominantly retired people very excited very excited to hear oh now that's very so so tell me again the extraterrestrial you know and these are all new ideas to people and then I had this lovely there was a ninety year old woman who was in the front row of an event I did in Berkhamsted and she was like it was as if she was conducting what I was saying because I could watch her different quizzical reactions as I was talking and it was almost like she was kind of go go over there and at the end of it she said I'm 90 years old and I wasn't allowed to study science I had to study three dead languages and then they made me go and work in the diplomatic community and I did not enjoy it at all and now I'm 90 and I can like science as much as I want and I do and it was just like these things just like and and I loved again all of those curious people and none of them are curious going you know I think I'm probably now going to end up inventing something they're just enjoying the bit that every time you find out an interesting new idea it changes your perspective and therefore it gives you more views you know it's a a, a single window that you're looking out of has just an enormous number of different views if you keep changing your knowledge of the sky Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, that's again only that's sort of interesting, isn't it? To think we, you and I, might have thirty or forty more years where we can just keep ingesting, <laughs> ingesting stuff and trying to make sense of it. And it, it is, and then ultimately, you know, Robin, it's all this information in him uh, will just disappear, and everything will turn to mulch, and all the things you've experienced. Except we'll, we'll leave our gone. books behind, and people will stuff. learn about penises and <laughs> testicles from your work, Richard. <laughs> There'll always be penises and testicles. That's not. That's not going to change. I've chosen the right. I've chosen the right. Well, it's a lovely thing, isn't it? Because discipline. that's the bit we leave these things, these mind fossils behind, and they'll go. Ah, oh, the mind fossils left here are from Robin Inter about giant killer crabs and about astronauts and about mental health, and it's all <laughs> cocks and balls from. <laughs> it's all for it. Well, I was thinking as I was written. One of the thing. One of the things that sparked. One of the ideas that sparked off me, which it, again it sort of just came tangentially from your book, and I can't even quite remember which bit it was. Was uh, the you know the idea? I just thought it'd be weird if one phone, one one person's phone survived ten thousand years, and they could and they could get the battery working, then they could read all the data on it, and and that was the only survival from from the civilization and if it was your phone or not your phone but if it was one's phone that would be all the works of literature <laughs> and whatever that survived and just thinking god all the uh, the podcasts and all the crap that's on your phone and all the things that aren't on your phone uh if, if your if your if your device became the uh the library for which you know our entire civilizations work. <laughs> well, it would be beautiful, wouldn't it, to go? So, so what was this twenty-first uh, century civilization? It was predominantly the worship of departed testicles, because they'll see that lovely puppet work you do, and they'll just go, yeah, yeah. There was so this was their god. Yes, this was their god. Yeah. <laughs> but it's you know it's so interesting how you know, but it is all those different perspectives coming together and and different tastes and and yeah, it is. It's amazing when you know. I think it's amazing when you can read plays from ancient greece or you know you get but even getting audio books from people who have died and there is this element that that your life does go on a little bit through through your work which is uh you know something you sort of discuss a little bit in the book as well um but anyway look there's it's, there's so much stuff in there there's time travels very interesting uh there's the uh, experience of astronauts, death, simulations, infinite universes, as we discussed. There's all there's uh, so many things dis- discussed in this. It's absolutely if you if you're at all interested in science uh, and uh, at all curious and interested, uh, then this is a fantastic book to buy. So please buy it, people. If, they, if we do this book club, it will be if you buy all Robin's book and then Robin's uh, publisher sees, hey, what? Why did we suddenly sell 400 copies of this book on this day? Okay, it was Richard Herring, and then we'll get some decent authors on. Not just my, not just my yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, we will. It's uh, fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, why should people buy your book, Robin? Let's do that. They should do. Um, well, I just uh, because hopefully it will just give them. I mean, the, the subtitle is "Adventures in Curiosity," and that's genuine. I want I wanted to have people to have as many adventures as possible. And it's like I was yeah. saying, it's that thing where I, I think if you if you just keep filling up your head with new stuff. It just, it makes, well, one, it makes time move a bit slower because the more novelty that you're dealing with. So if you're worried about the brevity of your life, reading books like mine will make, oh no, that sounds like it's a boring book. That's why it's going to feel like it's longer. It's not because it's a boring book, but because it's filled with lots of new things. 
Yeah. Also, a lot of people buy. I found that was like in November. No, it was in October. Lots of people were buying it for their kids who had just gone to university to study science because they thought, "Oh my God, they're going to get bored of science." And this frivolous, <laughs> foolish man might somehow still find something captivating in it. I do think it's very. Good. I mean, probably for teenagers and above because it's quite complicated. But it's I yeah. Think it's generally, a very I good think book, the youngest but... reader that I've I've heard from so far was twelve, and the oh, oldest right. one was ninety three. Okay. I got a lovely. I, I got this message. It, it was um, someone when I was down in uh, Totnes, beautiful bookshop in Totnes, and uh, and this person said, "Oh, my, my ninety-three-year-old uh, granddad couldn't come along. He wanted to come along, but I, can you sign this book for him?" And then I got a message a month later, and she went, "My granddad's read your book," and he said, "This is the book I've been waiting for my whole life." And to get that from a ninety-three-year-old, you go, "That's all right then. That's you know, I might not sell millions of books, but to get a reaction like that makes me quite happy." That's got to go on the front cover. Thank you very much, uh, Robin. Thank you, Richard Herring. We'll be back with more of these, uh, you know, intermittently. They're not necessarily going to be every week. Well, every time someone who's a friend of yours has written a book, because as you said, no no one else is... uh, (laughs) That's that's a no from Margaret Atwood. (laughs) Bloody hell. (laughs) 